Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions Magazine. Workplace violence prevention should be a priority for every environment, health, and safety professional. Although you may feel certain it could never happen at your organization, planning for the possibility of a violent incident is essential for ensuring that your employees stay as safe as possible. On our latest podcast episode, we're talking to a violence prevention expert who has the advice you need on everything from red flags to regulation, plus we'll talk about his own prevention philosophy called MOVE. Today, we are joined by Hector R. Alvarez, the president of Alvarez Associates, LLC. Hector is a certified threat manager specializing in workplace violence prevention, and he holds a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice and a Master of Science in Psychology. With prior experience ranging from city police officer to a security director responsible for protecting one of our nation's most sensitive critical infrastructures, Hector has personally assessed and or responded to thousands of potentially violent situations developed numerous violence prevention programs, and trained tens of thousands of employees and managers in the areas of crisis intervention, active shooter response, violence prevention, domestic terrorism, and emergency management. Hector will also be an expert speaker at the EHS Daily Advisors upcoming Safety Summit 2020, taking place April 6th through 8th in Indianapolis. So thank you very much, Hector, for being with us today on EHS on Tap. Thank you. I'm actually really honored to be with you. Oh, we're glad to have you. So uh, to start off, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, what led you to pursue a career in workplace violence prevention? And what's the biggest lesson that you've learned from your experiences that can help our audience keep their employees safe? No, sure. Absolutely. You know, what's really interesting is, is how I kind of stumbled into uh, the, the discipline of wanting to prevent violence. And it was really out of a sense of frustration because I did, as I did more and more work for clients or my companies, you know, we had access to, you know, all the, the, the gates, guards, and guns you could possibly imagine because they had, you know, uh, almost endless budgets, but violent incidents kept occurring. Mm. And, and I started to realize that it was a very personal um, human to human interaction. And it, it wasn't the controls that were failing so much as our ability to adhere to the controls. And I, and I just developed this passion for wanting to help people keep from getting hurt. I mean, as simple as that sounds, that was really the foundation of mm. what started me down this path. That's great. So what's one of the, what, what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned uh, uh, over, your, um, over your vast experience of preventing uh, violence? Yeah, it's probably, I go back and forth on trying to figure out, you know, what's the biggest lesson I've learned. And it, it's, a, it's a close tie between situations never ending up the way they appear in the beginning. You know, I've, I've started to review a lot of cases, incidents that appeared very scary and dramatic and tense in the very beginning. And then they turn out to not be so. Mm. And then the opposite is also true. You know, very often... Um, something that's presented to us as, you know, this is not a big deal. You probably shouldn't worry. And they ended up being a very significant issue. Um, mm. But it's constantly true that it's just nothing ever appears the way it turns out, the way it initially appeared. 
The second closest um, that I've learned is that you know somebody always knew. And if you could see me, I'm doing air quotes now. Um, mm. you know, I've assessed and have been involved in thousands of cases, and it's it's really disturbing and telling how often we knew that something was wrong and didn't take action. And so knowing that there were warning signs ahead of time that were overlooked is probably one of my biggest takeaways and, and you know, close frustration. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that sort of leads me into my next question for you. Um, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions or mistakes among employers regarding violence is the old, you know, it could never happen here attitude. Um, so besides that, what are some other common misconceptions or mistakes surrounding workplace violence and how can organizations overcome them? You know, and I, I think it, it's inherent kind of in the question that, uh, you know, we've got this denial um, that we see in a lot of organizations. And I think the denial itself is rooted in not understanding the full scope of workplace violence. When, mm. when you look at it, you realize that it's everything from somebody wanting to take something to how we interact with our customers to how we interact with each other. And then even personal relationships. You know, I, I continue to be surprised when we conduct classes on, on workplace violence and touch on domestic violence, how foreign and awkward it is to a lot of people. Mm. So probably the, the biggest misconception I think is how narrow some people define workplace violence. And when you take mm. a step back and you realize any violence that occurs at work is workplace violence, um, it really broadens that. But if you keep the fairly narrow definition, I think it allows you the comfort of not having to focus on it, but your employees are still left to deal with it. Absolutely. So uh, if I could pivot just a little bit and get a, a little bit on the uh, regulation front. So California has a workplace violence standard on the books for healthcare facilities um, with another proposed standard for general industry working its way through the state lawmaking uh, process. Do you think there will ever be a federal workplace safety standard put into place specifically addressing workplace violence? Well, I, I don't think it's letting the cat out of the bag at all to say that, you know, I sat in the standards development meetings for the healthcare and have also sat in on the standards development meetings for the general industry mm -hmm. and uh, observing, you know, federal regulators uh, monitoring the, the progress that California is making. Mm -hmm. uh, if I was just a betting person, I would say that, yes, I believe that at some point we're going to have a federal standard and I think we have to. Right. Um, you know, I, I think once you remove the mystique away from workplace violence and you look at it, you know, some of the cases that I deal with are so crystal clear. It would literally be like, you know, if somebody had come to your organization and dug a six foot deep, six foot wide hole in front of your office and then left and nobody said anything about the hole in front of the office and they walked by it and they didn't put guardrails. They didn't tell their employees how to address it. They didn't try and fill the hole back up. A lot of times the the incidents of potential violence are, in my opinion, that crystal clear and we're walking right by it. And if it's going to require an administrative incentive to address it, that may be, and it's likely, the path that we're headed. 
do you think that it would be relatively sooner rather than later? Or are we still looking for, I mean, the rulemaking process in general, I guess, takes a long time. But do you think it's a few years down the road, a few decades? So, and I hate this answer, it depends. So in, in California, the healthcare standard uh, was on the books. And then we had a significant, uh, a couple of significant uh, violent incidents in healthcare settings. And a, a state legislator uh, said, you know, that's enough. And drafted some legislature that put a just an arbitrary deadline. You have to have it in a year. Uh-huh. So the morbid side of me says at some point in the very near future, there's going to be an incident that is significant enough or relevant enough that catches a legislature's attention. And you're going to see uh-huh. this pace of legislation rapidly accelerate. And, and that's a prediction that I, I can't paste any foundation on. If it were to take its natural course in California, I think we're 18 to 24 months out, you know, a year and a half to two years out. Nationwide, you know, maybe it's three years. But okay. every day when I watch the news and I see tragic incidents occur, and, and we all witness it, and, mm-hmm. and we realize as we look at these that there probably was some indicators beforehand. Justin, I could see this being es- escalated um, much, much sooner than later. Mm. Okay. So now while the agency, the federal agency, doesn't currently have a standard, uh, federal OSHA does define um, four categories or types of workplace violence. Uh, Could you tell us uh, a little bit about each of these and perhaps which industries may especially be affected by each of them? Absolutely. And, you know, these four researchers, these four categories were based on research and I think of areas of our discussion and effort that are probably the most useful, mm-hmm. these four categories probably are. Because what they do is allow an organization or individual to break down the potential exposure very succinctly, very tight. Mm-hmm. And the four categories are fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. The first is just violence that's born out of some type of criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. So if you think of a traditional you know, a late night convenience store or um, a, a taxi driver driving by themselves and there's something to take, mm-hmm. cash, drugs, and the individuals by themselves, first mm-hmm. category. Okay. Category two involves the, the type of interaction that we have with customers. Mm-hmm. And so very stereotypically, you would be thinking of, you know, a nurse patient, um, a librarian and a librarian patron, it's mm. the nature of the ongoing interaction with the customer. Mm. The third type really involves who we work with. Some call it lateral violence. It's coworker on coworker violence. Mm-hmm. And it can involve somebody you work with now or somebody you work with in the past. And the fourth category deals with interpersonal violence or domestic violence mm. that may spill over to the workplace. And what gets confusing for some people is sometimes we think of interpersonal violence as just our personal relationships outside work. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, people are people. And, and sometimes people date each other at work, you know, relationships get complicated. Right. Any domestic issue that could spill over, that's this category. Um, for myself personally, the one that is the most concerning is type four, the interpersonal mm-hmm. violence. Um, it's one of the leading causes of death for women in the workplace. But the thing that really concerns me the most is that because it's so personal and, and intimate, 
that a lot of people don't like talking about it. You know, when I when I teach a class and I go through the four categories, um, everybody's paying attention, interactive, and as soon as I mention the phrase domestic violence, the entire tone and tenor of the room changes. There, mm. Unfortunately, there's a, a lot of stigmas around it. And so my concern is because there's stigmas around addressing it, it makes it much more likely that people will not come forward. Now, right. if you're a, as an example, a pharmacy technician or a pharmacist who works at a retail area that stays open late at night, would type one be very concerning to me or type two? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's important that industries, that individuals have the ability to look across the spectrum of four categories of violence mm-hmm. and assess what's my biggest exposure. So speaking of uh, what their biggest exposure is, uh, could you tell us what are some of the biggest red flags for potential violence that all employers should be aware of? You know, and here's here, this is such a big question because I, you know, I, I continue to evolve in my approach to addressing violence. And, and what I've started to realize is very often we understand and even recognize the red flags of potential violence because they're so crystal clear. And, and I'll boil it down to the simplest that I possibly can state it. The individual sure. does not act like a regular customer. The individual does not act mm-hmm. like a regular customer. And I'm doing big air quotes and I'm emphasizing regular to make sure that it's not confused with me saying normal. It's not normal. We're all different. There's mm-hmm. no there's no baseline. However, mm-hmm. as human beings who interact with other human beings, you start to realize that there's different ways people interact when they're upset. And then there are those who are different. They act outside the norm. So to me, the biggest red flag for us as an individual is when you find yourself wondering, hey, that doesn't seem right. Hey, that seems unusual. I wonder if I should say something. So the big bar for me, if you ever wonder, if you you find yourself ever wondering if you should say something, you should say something. So that that Mm -hmm. big red flag is, is an inconsistency with how that person has normally interacted with you. It sounds overly simple, but that's what we keep hearing. And when I talk to people post-incident, they always tell me that they knew something was different. Mm. So so folks should really kind of trust their instincts in that sort of regard. Yeah, you know, and I, I couldn't make it any clearer professionally and personally. I have come full circle to believing that the greatest tool that we have for detecting the potential violence is trust in our intuition, period. And however, it requires some self-awareness. You, you do have to be aware of other contributing factors that can, that can get confused with intuition. You know, sometimes our past experiences, a bias, um, just views in general of the world can be confused with intuition, but they're not the same thing. Intuition in its rawest form is the most accurate. I mean, just think about this. If you think about in your lifetime, how many times you may have truly been concerned for your personal safety, being really scared, mm-hmm. and you draw a line, and you add in how many people in that same period of time you've interacted with, at the movies, at the mall, um, wherever. And you're, what you're going to find out, or what you're going to realize, on top, 
you have a number that's relatively small, you know, once or twice, I've really been nervous mm -hmm. over a number that is indescribably large. Because what we right. are doing on a regular basis is screening out concerning behavior, not a threat, not a threat, not a threat. This one's different. So we do have to allow ourselves to realize that we are really good at understanding our situations because we're human beings who've been around other human beings. And when something is abnormal, it stands out. Um, so now I'd like to talk a little bit about um, your own approach to uh, violence prevention. You know, there are a lot of simple, easy to remember maxims when it comes to addressing violence, you know, the most recognizable of which is run, hide, fight. Yeah. Uh, now, your advice for those dealing with an active shooter incident in particular is summed up in the acronym MOVE, M-O-V-E. So could you tell us a little bit about each of these elements to your approach? Absolutely. You know, when you when you look at responding, once we've missed everything or we, we didn't have the opportunity to identify it and something terrible happens, an, an act of violence that is in progress, you know, there's there's two big schools of thought. There's what's called a static approach, um, a plan, lockdown or or do some action, draw a line on the other side of the fence is what's called, you know, an options based mm -hmm. response. I tend to strongly support an option-based response. So the move component for us is an acronym that basically says it's this simple. If, as we're sitting here listening to this podcast, if there were gunfire shots, screaming or yelling coming from in front of us, what direction would you want to go? And, and I hope you all point and in your mind say, well, the other way, you ding dong. <laughs> um, right. I want it to be that simple. Mm-hmm. We have to move away. Now, the, the move elements add an additional layer, which is one, I believe strongly that your ability to survive an incident starts before an incident occurs. The M stands for mindset. Okay. I want to go home and I'm going to go home. Right. The O stands for orientation. Before you can run or duck or hide, you have to quickly figure out where the violence is coming from. Mm -hmm. If it's coming from the front, I want to go to the back. Just get your bearings very quickly. The V stands for volume. Mm -hmm. okay. If for some reason, based on the scenario, I cannot run away, okay, I want to put as much time, distance, and material between me and the bad mm -hmm. thing. You know, I never want to suggest to anybody that you take a bunch of chairs to a gunfight. But if I do, I want you to take all the chairs. Right. Okay? Take them all. And then lastly, the Eve. If he or she, if the gunman has found your location, you may have no other options than, foul, than to fight back. The E is engage. Mm -hmm. With everything you've got, it's fighting back. And if you can remember nothing about the acronym, you just have to remember to move move away from the violence, move to secure yourself, move to evacuate. I wanted it to be simple. Absolutely. Yeah, Justin, I had a conversation with my daughter today. You know, she goes to school in Texas and at one of her sister colleges today, um, there was an act of violence. Mm -hmm. And I can only assume that two young kids lost their life. And I got to tell you, man, it gets, mm -hmm. it gets no more personal than seeing people close to you and have to worry about, you know, are they going to make it back home? So when I've thought about this approach, 
it's got to be simple and it's got to be practical yeah it's 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 a it's a crazy topic it's 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 also a very grim topic you know like what we've been talking about and um you know while it's imperative to you know discuss it and conduct training uh like we've been talking about it's still hard for a lot of people to discuss so uh before we sign off i want to ask you um without downplaying the issue at all um are there causes for optimism on the work uh, the violence prevention front um any positive takeaways for our audience that maybe they can pass on to their workforce you know and i i don't think there could have been a more important question to ask because mm-hmm. while i think it's powerful to understand the warning signs and while I, I think it can be powerful to to understand the differences between people I think the thing that's going to get us through is one, there are more good people than bad. Mm. Two, while I think it's important to understand the differences between all of us, I put more faith and belief and and optimism on working together on the things that we share in common. Mm. We all want to be treated with respect. Mm -hmm. We all want to be listened to. We all do not want to be told what to do. And I think the more that we focus on not just our diversities, but the things that bind us together, we will mm-hmm. spend much less time talking about how to survive an active shooter and much more time talking about just how to have a positive interaction and experience with each other at work. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you can't, you know, I, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, darkness will not drive out darkness. And as cheesy or as silly as it may sound, um, the more that we focus on the positivity and the the supportive interaction with each other, the better off we're all going to be. I think that was Martin Luther King that said that, wasn't it? I think it may have been. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, that is that is some good positive takeaways there. Uh, and this has been a lot of very valuable information for our listeners. Um, We're looking forward to hearing more from you at Safety Summit 2020, Hector, and thank you again for taking the time to be with us today on EHS on Tap. Uh, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to it as well. Now, if you'd like to hear more from Hector about workplace violence prevention, as well as learn a great deal more about all aspects of safety management, be sure to join us at the EHS Daily Advisors' upcoming Safety Summit 2020, taking place April 6th through 8th in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hector will be speaking at the main conference, as well as hosting a separate pre-conference workshop. So visit live.blr.com today to register, or click on the links that appear on this podcast episode's EHS Daily Advisor webpage. And in the meantime, look out for new episodes of EHS on Tap and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest and best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap.